you know, you can accomplish a lot in life. Did you know that? It's not even prosperity preaching. That's just a matter of fact, right? You can accomplish a lot. You have the capacity, the ability, uh, the margin in your life to do a lot of things. You can also work your whole life and build a lifetime of success. You can do that. And you can work your whole life, and you can accomplish a lot, and you can be successful. Young people, I am young people, so young people, you can be the biggest influencer the world has ever seen. You can have more followers on Instagram. I don't even know what TikTok is, but I hear that's popular. So you can do a lot of things on TikTok. You can be the most popular figure in this world. You can try. But there's one thing as a Christian. If you miss this one thing, it's so pivotal, it's so important. And if you miss it, you miss the entire point of the gospel, the entire point of scripture, the entire reason that we exist. It's pretty big, isn't it? We don't want to miss the whole point. I say it this way. 1 Corinthians 13 says it this way, that I can speak in a million different languages, even languages of the angels. I can know all the mysteries of the universe. I can have faith to move mountains, and I can give away all that I have, and I can even be put to death as a martyr of the gospel. But if I don't have this one thing, I'm nothing. That one thing, the Bible clarifies over and over and over and over again, is love. If you don't have this one thing, you miss the whole point. You missed it. You missed the point of the gospel. You missed the point of existing. The point is this. That if we hope to build godly lives, which is, is where we are, right? We're here at part two of our sermon series, uh, a work in progress. And we're finishing up the part two of this mini-series of building godly lives. And we have to understand, here's the point. That if we hope to build this godly life, if I hope to wake up in the morning and I hope to be walking in righteousness, I hope to be living well in my marriage, in my church, I hope to be uh, having great interpersonal relationships with God's people, and I hope to be hitting the target when it comes to the point of my life, I have to display Christ-like love to one another, and it must be my primary objective. Doesn't that simplify things for you a little bit? You can be doing all these other things, which can be very good things, but if you miss this one point, it was pointless. John 13, Jesus says this, when he wants to really fulfill all the commandments of, of Scripture, he says this in verse 34 of John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So not only are we asked to love one another, we're asked to do it in a particular way, and the particular way is the way that Christ loved us. And there's a lot of implications to that. We're going to get in a lot of that this morning. But the bottom line is our command is to love one another, and we do it the way Christ loved us. And it says, you are also to love one another. And here's a consequence of loving one another the way Christ loves us. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You, know, you ought not to find it strange that if you do not love God's people, that people wonder if you're a disciple. You looking at me? Okay. When if you ought to, if you have a, a problem or it seems to be too cumbersome or there seems to be too high of a hurdle for you to jump to be loving, not just be loving, but to love God's people, you ought not to find it strange to have people question, and you yourself ought to question, am I a disciple? Because that's what makes a disciple. Jesus says, you will know, people will know you are my disciples if you do this one thing. If you love one another. I think our churches are known too little for being churches that love the saints. We're known too often as uh, places of conflict, of places of division. And we wonder why people don't take Christianity seriously, they don't take the church seriously, because we don't take love seriously. 
You see, forgetting our primary purpose, and that is to display the, the very steadfast love of God that he displayed to us, forgetting that one thing is the biggest mistake Christians make. Forgetting this one thing. I don't want to oversimplify this because there's implications of love and there's a, a lot. There's, there's an infinite amount of implications that when we start loving, a lot of other things happen. But all these other things cannot happen outside of our love for one another, our love for God, our love for people. We love God, we love people, and, and I will impress upon you the need to actually love God in a way that allows you to love people. You hear what I'm saying? The problem is that oftentimes when we read Scripture and it tells us to love our neighbor, uh, and it tells us, like we learned last week, that we have to have compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, we find this as a list of things I've got to do, and you will see them as a list of things to do if you don't love God. Right? I love my wife, and I understand that loving my, life, my wife comes with implications. And those implications are there's a whole lot of things that I need to do to show my wife that I love her, but those things aren't cumbersome. You know, I can serve my wife and love my wife and do things for my wife because I love her. And if I love her, these things are no longer burdensome or cumbersome. But so many times when we come to Scripture and the Bible says we ought to do this, we say, I, I didn't know this had to be about doing things. I didn't know I had to do something for God. Well, do you love him? Because if you love him, exactly what he says, what Christ says, like, my yoke is light. My burden is light. I'm not cumbersome. This isn't a cumbersome thing between you and me because when you do this out of love, you understand why we do all these things. You understand why we go the extra mile and we spend the extra dollar. We understand why because we love. You see how all this should come together in our lives, right? When we love, uh, there is no amount of things we're not willing to do and there's, no, uh, there's not a, a too much that we are willing to bear as Christians for one another, just like in your marriage, in my particular marriage, I can't speak for yours, I hope I could, but speaking in my marriage, there's not a place we are not willing to go because we love each other. Now, a lack of love brings us a lack of places that we are willing to go, a lack of burdens that we're not willing to carry, and a bunch of hurdles we're not willing to jump over. And that sounds a lot like many churches in our culture, doesn't it? Why is love so important? Because Galatians 5.14, in the Old Testament, we can, we can go there even back to Exodus, but at least the Galatians 5.14 says this, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. The whole law, all of it. You want, to read, you want me to sum up all of the Bible in one word? It's this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've talked about this over and over again, but you've never had a problem loving yourself. And in our culture, people might say you do, but you don't. You treat yourself better than you treat anybody. You do more for yourself than you do for anybody else. You think more highly of yourself than you think of anyone else. Although you've caused more problems with yourself than anyone has ever created in your life, you are the biggest problem you've ever had, and yet you love yourself. You jump all the hurdles in the world for yourself. You're willing to go the extra mile for yourself. You're willing to spend the extra dollar on yourself. Is this not true about us? That's why the Bible teaches us that the way you treat yourself, would you love others that way? Because the whole law is fulfilled in this one thing, that you would love your neighbor. Now in Colossians 3, 14 and 15, you can flip there in your Bible, open it up on your tablet, reading out of the ESV. Paul wants the Colossian Christians to understand this one thing, that all the Christian virtue in the world, all of the, the goodness that flows from us comes from one source. Right? Your ability and your capacity to do all these other things in the Christian faith flow from one source. And this is, oh, this is so important for us to understand as believers because if you have a problem, and I'm talking about a problem like maybe you don't agree with when the Bible tells you how to do something. Maybe you say, in my heart, I just don't feel like I have the capacity. The thing that is lacking in your life, if you feel like you can't do what the Bible says, if you feel like you can't truly love God's people, the primary problem is the source, that you have a lack of love. Because when we love, we're willing to go as far as we need to. And the Apostle Paul wants the Colossian Christians to understand this one thing. And he says it there in Colossians three fourteen. 
And he says this to begin with. And he begins with asserting the primacy of love in the Christian life. The number one thing that we've got to do is this. And above all of these, put on love. We got it over, over above everything else he just said. You remember what he said last week, right? He didn't say it last week. He wrote it all at once, but we talked about it last week, okay? And he talked about this. Because you're chosen, because you're holy, and because you're loved, you need to put on these things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, right? You got to do those things. You ever been around people who don't love you? No one? Okay, well. Just me? All right, just me. Okay. Uh, when I'm around people who don't love me, the last thing that I'm shown is compassion and kindness uh, and humility and meekness and patience. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a whole list of things that I find in unloving relationships. There's a, lot of, there's a whole list that actually we read in Colossians uh, when it comes to things people do when they don't love. Right? And we read it just a few weeks ago. They partake in things like, like sexual immorality, right? idolatry, envy. Right? They're, they're, they're people who just they idolize things, they want things, they desire things, and they're willing to get it however they want it. There's a lot of our relationships that look just like that. And the problem is, when our relationships look like that, we lack one thing, and it's love. When our marriages, and we maybe have a problem in our marriages, in our home, in our church, and we have a problem to, of showing compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. The problem isn't that you're not being patient. The problem is you're not being loving, that you're not loving. Your problem isn't a lack of patience. Your problem is a lack of love, because love is going to allow you patience. Too many times we try to, we try to focus in on these, these small things, like these attributes, these, these, uh, these virtues of, of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love. And the, it comes down to this. If you will love, if you will love people, those things will, will fix themselves. Those things will figure themselves out. You may have to learn how to do it well, but they, they happen automatically because you love. And Paul says it this way when he says, above, over all these things. So there's all these things you ought to talk about, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, uh, patience. And he says, here's what you need to do with that. Uh, love needs to be put over all those things. Even, even you think of uh, clothes they used to wear in the first century, right? They had, their, they had their, like, their robe on, but then they had a coat they put over it. And to keep all that thing together, they put a belt on, okay? Because uh, if not, everything was just kind of swinging around and nothing was, it was just all kind of out there. And they would put a belt around it to keep it on, okay? We don't all wear robes and overcoats anymore, but what we do, okay? Uh, guys, you have pants on, you have a shirt and you tuck it in. Uh, and to keep it all together, you put a belt on it, okay? And so when you're wearing all these things in your life, uh, you need to make sure they're all fastened down by love, okay? You may be able to, to show compassion and show kindness and be humble and meek and patient, but you can't sustain it and you can't wear it well if it's not bound together by love. And that's why it was so hard for me last week not to preach this week, last week, uh, because it was like, if we try to do all those things, and if you try to do it this week and you didn't love somebody in it, you probably failed, which is great. Welcome back to class, okay? Because you missed something. Okay? You missed love. But I'm not talking about any love, okay? And I need you to pay attention here because if you want to zone out right now, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it, okay? We're talking about a particular kind of love. We're not talking about, I love football and I love pizza and I love, you know, cartoons. It's not I love that. This is a, a love in the Greek that is agape love. And it's a particular kind of love because it's more than a, an emotion. It's not primarily about the way that I feel. Okay, and, and let me not give you the definition with my own words. Let me give you the definition that scripture uses when it defines agape love. There are other kinds of love in the Greek. We'll get to those some other day, not this morning. But what you need to understand is agape love. Write down 1 John 3, 16 through 18. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Here's how we can know what love is, what agape love is. By this, we know love. We can know love. We can know what it looks like. We can know what it consists of because of this thing here. That he laid down his life for us, that is Christ, that he laid down his life, his preferences, right? He laid down what, he, uh, what his interests were for the sake of ours, and so he laid down his life, and we ought to, therefore, lay down our lives for the brothers, okay? We're getting pretty 
concrete, but let's get a little bit more concrete. What does that mean in real time? Verse 17. That just means this. If anyone has the world's goods, that means if you have means, if you have things, if you have something, okay, and you realize when you have these things and you see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You ever seen uh, somebody in the church with a need and you know you could fulfill that need and you decide not to fulfill that need? That's the person in which we see in 1 John, the apostle John says, the love of God does not abide in them. Okay? And I know we can talk about, well, you know, what about everybody? What about everybody in the world? Great, but we're not talking about everybody in the world. Right now we're talking about God's church. And if you have a hard time loving God's church, you're definitely not going to love sinners who aren't redeemed, who don't, who, who don't have these commands to follow and the power of the, the, the Spirit in them to sustain their love towards you. You're not, you definitely can't love those people if you can't at least love the people who are called to love like you are. And so I am talking about the church. And I want you to talk about the church because these people who are in the church, that is people who have turned from their sins and they trust in Christ, how long are they going to be with you? Eternity. Eternity. Okay, you're going to have to learn how to love the people you're going to be with forever. If you're not, you're going to have to spend such a long time trying to get along with people and you know you're going to be with them forever. And all I'm trying to say is for you and I, the least we can do is lay down our own desires and our own preferences for the sake of the people in God's church. The least we can do is if we have something that someone needs and they, they, we know they need it and we don't give it to them, how can we love? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed in, in truth. See, here's the, the final nail in the coffin of what is love, okay? Uh, love is not what I say. Okay, love is not that I tell you I love you. That's not love. Okay, love is something I do in both deed and in truth. The way that I do it is truthful and honest and integrous, and it is shown by how I live my life toward you. That's love. And I know that because when I look at Christ and what he did for us, for me on the cross, I look and say, that's exactly what he did. Integrous, honest, meek, humbled himself to the obedience even death on a cross, said, not, not my will, God, but, but your will be done. Laid down his own preferences, his own interests, his own desires for the sake of those he loved. And I'm just saying, at least because of this, like, we need to understand that we ought to do this as point number one. The least that we can do is lay down your life for your friends. There's so much more here. Talk about binding everything together in perfect harmony. We realize that it is actually the love, right, that, that makes this work. Right? When, your church is, when your church has conflict and it's splitting right down the middle, uh, you, the diagnosis is a lack of love, right? When your marriage is splitting down the middle and you can't resolve conflict and you can't, it seems like there's nowhere to go from here, uh, the diagnosis is a lack of love. I can keep going. It doesn't matter. The, the, at the end of the day, the problem is a lack of love. We go back to the garden in Genesis 3. Uh, the problem was a lack of, of love. You say, well, how so? Well, if I love God, I'm going to what? Obey his commandments. Right? If I love God, I'm going to love his word more than any interest and desire that I have. And that's exactly what Eve and Adam did when they were in the garden. Is She saw the fruit that it was desirous to make one wise. And she took of it because she loved her more than she loved God. She ate it and she gave some to her husband. And her husband, who had the very words of God that looked at him. And, and God said, you should not eat this fruit. And you better let your wife know it. And their kids know it. And their kids know it. And their kids know it. That they ought to obey me and love me above all things. And she gave it to him. And he looked at it and said, eh, I love me more too and then took a bite. And the problem in our lives is we often love ourselves far more than we love God. And then we wonder why everything in our life is a wreck because we have love out of order. Love in order is that I love God and then I love others. Where am I on that list? I don't, I'm not on the list because I already love myself well. Right? I don't have to figure out how to love myself because I do that anyway. We're always looking out for uno. And the Bible has to spend all this time teaching us how to stop looking out for yourself and look out for the interests of others. The least we can do is lay down our lives for our friends. Why is love needed to connect all these things? 
Well, Paul, this is not, not the first time Paul brings this up in Colossians. You know, he brings this up in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, this is what Paul's desire is for that, that love would be useful for this thing. That their hearts may be encouraged. That being knit together in love, knit together, right? Uh, these, uh, we just read, right, that love binds all these things together. Well, we read in chapter 2 that love knits these things together. You see how love ought to be so intertwined in everything that we do as Christians. We can't leave home without it. Right? We can't have conflict without it. Right? We, can't truly, we can't do good for people without love. I'm not talking about saying you love. I'm not talking about the fuzzy feelings. I'm talking about you laying your life down for your friends. I'm, I'm talking about you meeting the needs of God's people. John 15, 13 says, The greater love knows no one in this. There is no greater expression of love. There is no greater evidential practice of love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, I know uh, none of us are Jesus in here. Probably none of us are going to be asked to die for people we love. Uh, but what we are asked to do is die to ourselves. What Christ asks us to do is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. And with that comes so many implications. There's so many implications about taking up our cross, counting the cost, following him, and then loving people, and going out there and loving God's people. You, you, we talk a lot, and I know Acts is, uh, it's, it's not prescriptive, often it's descriptive, it's describing something going on, and we often wonder, how in the world did all those Christians in Acts just sell everything they had and had everything in common? Well, they had a lot of love. They had a lot of love for one another. Now, I'm not saying that at Compass Bible Church, we all need to get ready when we walk out of this door to sell everything we have. We're about to move down the street to a big old commune. That's called a cult. Okay, we're not doing that. But what we can do is when we walk out of these doors, we understand I'm going to do everything I can to meet the needs of the saints because that's my call and that's what love looks like. How different would our church look like if that's the life we lived? What we need to do, just in practical application this week, is we need to think about people in our church. I'm not talking about your friends outside of the church. I'm not talking about your family. All right. I'm not talking about even if you have family in here. Uh, let's, let's don't count them in this, okay? Uh, what I want you to do is find some people in this church uh, and lay down some of your own comfort to be their comfort. Uh, this week, I want you to... to to not look out for your own interests, your own desires, your own preference, your own comfort. I want you to lay that aside, and I want you to pick how many people? I said in your application questions. Pick two people. Write down two close friends in our church, and I want you to list one way you can be a benefit to them this week. Find two friends. Write down a way for each of those friends how you can be a benefit this week. And if you could say something, oh, I don't have any friends here. Great. After service, make some friends. <laughs> That's not funny. Go make some friends. And before this week is up, before you come back next week, your homework is to be a benefit to them. Can you just imagine the love and the relationships that would erupt in this church if we would do that this week? Could you imagine? And we're getting somewhere for all this. We're setting up a foundation so other things don't happen in our church. But that's something practical that we could all do this week. Go be a benefit to someone. Remember, that's what, that's what it meant to be kind, right? Last week we learned that. Kindness means to be a benefit. To love people means to be a benefit for them, for their interests. You know, it's your eagerness to display God's love has a direct result in the extent to which you pursue this other thing that's so important in this text, and it's called peace, right? Your love is what it takes to pursue peace. And again, when we see church conflict so often, we see conflict because we're not pursuing peace because we don't love them. We don't love them. We look at them in the eyeballs and we say, I don't love you. I'm willing to say anything I want to behind closed doors because I don't really care about you. This is what it says. Look at verse 15, the first part of verse 15. It says, you need to do this. Colossians 3, 15. You need to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So much here. And I want to try to unpack it. This is going to be the longest part of the sermon. Okay, so buckle in. All right, we got to know this. Okay, because so many of you, I got love. I got I locked in. I'm locked in with love. Okay, well, show me right here. 
We need to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, there's an imperative there. You remember, imperatives mean this is something the Bible looks at us and says, you must do this, right? It's one of those areas where you're like, okay, I know I, sometimes it's hard for me to know what's the Bible telling me to do. Well, this isn't one of them because it's a second person imperative. It's a verb, and it's telling you to do it, okay? And that verb is this, that it should rule in your heart, that the peace of Christ shall rule in your heart. What does that word rule mean? It means to arbitrate and to govern, Okay, so the peace of Christ ought to be the arbitrator in your life amongst other people. Isn't that, isn't that such a good word, right? Well, the peace of Christ in my life ought to be the end of the line when it comes to when conflict enters my life from someone else. Because the same peace that I was given by God ought to be the same peace that arbitrates my peace with other people. And it's the kind of peace that, that loves in the kind of way that we are humble and patient and forgiving because Christ forgave us. You see that? When conflict gets to my front door, it's over because the arbitration of the peace of Christ is what fixes my problems. When you come with me with a problem, you're going to leave with reconciliation. What if we thought about that? Because so many times what we say and said is, you come to me with a problem, I'm going to give you a problem. Isn't that how we often, our attitude is towards conflict? But yet, scriptural, scripturally, when people come to us with conflicts, they need to leave with resolution. When people come to me with a conflict towards me, they need to leave with reconciliation because I let the peace of Christ rule in my life. So much here, and I, can't, I, gotta, I gotta dig in. All right, we need to understand the nature of Christian peace, right? The nature of it. Like, what does it consist of? What, what, is, what is the identity of, of Christian peace? Because it is different than the peace of the world, you realize. I mean, it, it's, it's by no uh, strange reason that Jesus says, my peace I give you. I give you my peace, and it's not like the world's. It's different. And so we got to understand, what is the nature then of Christian peace? Christian peace is that very thing which Christ purchased for us and it is to produce joyful communion with God and extend to joyful communion with God's people. Did you hear that? All right. Christian peace did this one thing for us. It allowed us into the very presence and communion with God. And you know what kind of communion? A joyful communion. And this is why it's so difficult when people think it's a begrudging thing to love God well. God had loved us so well that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We get to be, we're ushered into the presence of a God who, who purchased us. And then we look at him and say, I got to do all this for you. No, we say, I get to do all this for God. I love him. He purchased me. He won me. He bought me. I'm his because he loved me. Because I was unlovable and yet he loved me anyway. Like that's like, you see that in the picture of the gospel. And we ask, why is it so hard for you to love God? Why is it so hard for us to love God when he did so much on your behalf? Now, it shouldn't also produce joyful communion with God, but it starts from that, right? If his commands aren't burdensome, if his yoke is easy, in what way is it easy? Because when I have to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him, that doesn't seem easy. But it's easy compared to anything else I could have done. It's easy compared to any other life I could have lived. It's so easy because I love him so much that at least I can do is take up my cross and follow him. And then it becomes, it's so easy to deal with a bad relationship uh, with, with somebody in the church because it would, I mean, what, are, what is the other option here? Live in enmity with God, right? Live on, under my own desires, my own passion, and my own flesh. There's so much more I can do here. There's, I mean, all I got to do now is go resolve conflict between my friends. That's easy. That's bur that burdensome is light. That's so much lighter than having to try to fix my relationship with God, which is impossible. But I can go fix my relationship with my friends. I can go fix my relationship with my church. And so the, the very nature of Christian peace is as I extend my communion, my joyful, loving communion with God's people. And when I have a problem, I fix it. We solve it. Why? Because I want us to know something. Man, there's so much here. You have to know this one thing. You need to understand the weight of the peace of Christ. Right? Before you create conflict in God's church, and I would argue if your brother and your, sorry, if your husband and your wife, a husband and wife, if you're Christians, you better understand the weight of Christian peace in your marriage and what it costs to have Christian peace and what is expected because we have the kind of peace that comes from Christ. You need to understand the loftiness and the weightiness of the peace of Christ. 
And you better be careful before you step on the peace of Christ and create conflict. You have to. You have to be careful. Because here's what the peace of Christ costs, and this is what, what happened. Colossians 1, 19. You don't have to flip to it. I mean, it doesn't take very long if you want. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, in order to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven and earth, he made peace by the blood of his cross. You realize that Christ coming down is fully God, fully man, coming down in the flesh to make peace in order to give us the nature of Christian peace. It took him shedding his blood. And so I want you to know that, that on all of the saints of God, the blood of Christ is poured on. And so when I am looking at all the saints in Christ, all my brothers and all my sisters and even my wife, I look at her and before I try to step on the bond of peace, I have to realize I'm looking through the blood of Christ. And are you willing to get into conflict with somebody who has a blood of Christ covering them? Because I'm going to tell you, God isn't. God is not willing to pour wrath out on people who have the blood of Christ on them. But why are we? How do we have the audacity as, as Christians to pour our wrath out on people whose wrath has been covered by the blood of Christ? Do you see the weight of peace? The weight of peace should be so lofty and it should be so dignified and honored among Christians that that's a place I don't step. Peace is a, a, away from peace into conflict is not a place I go as a Christian. It's not the realm that I exist in among my brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's why. Second phrase, verse 15. It's to this that you were called in one body. This is your calling, kaleo. Remember, this is your kaleo. That means kaleo is your responsibility. This is you, this you were called to. This is what is expecting from you. This is what it means to be you. To be you means that I live in peace with my brothers and sisters. Can I give you another scripture? Ephesians 2, jot that down. Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. I, I pick out Ephesians 2, 13 through 14 because of, because of two main things. It talks about the peace of Christ and how he purchased us, but it also talks about the need for brothers and sisters now to be united in one. You see, in the church in Ephesus, you had these two groups, right? You had the Jews and you had the Greeks, uh, and they were different in culture, different in race, different in nationality, different in, in, in all of their preferences. And here's what it says. But now in Christ Jesus, in him, in his but through his blood, you who were once far off, you were far off from God and you were far off from one another. You were far off. But here's what happens. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our entire Christian community is wound up in the fact that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The one thing that unifies us is the blood of Christ. We can't step on that. But here, here's the good news. Verse 14. This comes to our relationships. For he himself is our peace. Already, already so important. He himself is our peace. What sustains peace between brothers and sisters in Christ? God's church, Christ. His peace. So he is our peace. That's, the, that's what sustains our peace. That's what motivates and drives our peace. And here's what that peace has done. That peace has not only brought us far off to be brought near to God, it has also done this. It has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility interpersonally in God's church, his blood has done something in our lives, and it's this. He has brought us near to one another, and he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that would stand in between brothers and sisters in Christ. He's eradicated. He's destroyed it. It doesn't exist in here anymore. That's what the blood of Christ does. It has real implications, and it all came from love. He loved so those things happen. Therefore, we love so that we can do this. And it's point number two, to lay down your preferences in the name of peace. Point number two, you need to lay down your preferences in the name of peace. But what kind of peace? The peace that comes from Christ. I want us to understand this because what I'm not saying is I'm not telling us to to lay down our preferences in the name of a worldly peace or a fleeting peace, or I'm not trying to appease somebody else so they you know, won't get mad for another 10 minutes, but they'll get mad tomorrow. It's not that kind of peace. It's not this fleeting peace. We lay down our preferences in the name of the peace of Christ. That is that Christ has, has bought me and he's bought you. We're together in one family, and there's nothing more important than that. Now with that, right, 
to understand the doctrine of peace, the doctrine of salvation. You're, now I'm into doctrine. Do you hear this? Okay. We have to believe certain things about the Bible and about Christ to come to these conclusions. True? All right. We have to. Because when I say we make, we're making peace, so we're laying down our preferences, here's what I'm not saying. I wrote it, so I'd say it well. I'm not saying, for example, that we allow our Unitarian neighbors across the road, right? God bless them. We want to see them come to Christ, but they're right over there, okay? Uh, and I'm not asking them to come over here and for us to get in a little huddle and try to come up with the lowest com common denominator of our beliefs, and then we go from there in order to we keep peace. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Because the lowest common denominator for me and my Unitarian friends is this, that penal substitutionary atonement is not necessary, that I don't need to ask forgiveness for my sins because I'm a good person. Okay? We do not have the peace of Christ when we can't first understand that I need to turn from my sins and trust in Christ. So you see, I'm, I'm not talking about our understanding of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. We don't lay down, right? Because that's not a preference, and that's what I'm trying to help you understand. There's a difference between preferences and commands. And in the Christian church, it's vital that you don't mix these two up. And the problem is, especially in churches like ours, right? Because we, and we know what we believe, right? Don't we? We know what we believe. You're here because you're like, I church preaching what I believe, okay? But so many of us sometimes say, here's some things that I prefer, and I can give you a lot of scriptures of why I prefer it, so therefore they're no longer preferences, they're commands. And you guys better do it too, okay? When we mix those two up, that is the recipe for division and conflict in God's church, and that will not happen here. Okay, and here's what I mean. Romans 14. It's a good place to start, isn't it? Romans 14. Jot it down, flip it to it if you can get there quick. Romans 14. Paul says this to the church in Rome. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, a couple of observations. Number one, a one who is weak in the faith. Are they in the faith? Are they? They are, because it says they're in the faith. They've turned from their sins. They trust in Christ. They've recognized they're a sinner. They recognize that the exclusivity of the gospel is paramount to the Christian faith. So they are Christians, but he's weak. You ought to welcome him. And here's what you don't do. You don't quarrel over opinions. You don't quarrel over, over things in our society that the Bible doesn't say, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. That you, as, as a convictional Christian, as you have walked your faith out, have noticed there's things going on in society that are kind of like gray areas. They're kind of, you see Christians doing it, you see non-Christians doing it. I'm not talking about sinful things here, you realize. I'm talking about other things in culture that as you have walked out your Christian faith, you have made a convictional decision not to do those things because of your faith, okay? That other Christians that aren't talking about sin have decided that they would do. And this is what it's saying. As for the one who's weak in the faith, welcome him and don't quarrel over opinions. I'm not asking you to quarrel over your preferences. The Bible says you do not quarrel over your preferences. Now, here's an example. One person believes he may eat anything. That's most of us, so we don't really argue about that, do we? Well, actually, no, that isn't all of us. We all think we shouldn't eat certain things. While the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, so we have these two groups. I can eat anything. You can only eat vegetables. And they have strong convictions about this. And they were so strong that we find it in Scripture because there was quarreling over people thinking, I can eat anything and I can eat vegetables. And there was a real Jewish food laws that created this kind of conflict. So now you have these people who were raised this way. I was raised to do this this way. And you're going to tell me that you're not going to do this when I was raised to do this? Okay, And then you get saved, and you get brought into God's household, and that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down with all those problems, and you get together, and you walk up, and you're saying, you better eat food that I eat. And that person says, no, 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 I want to eat this food. Uh, it's an opinion. Drop it. Okay? Drop it. It's an opinion. But here's what we do with them. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. You both have no reason to pass judgment on one another. We're not talking about sin here. This isn't a sin problem, okay? For God has welcomed him. There's, there's, there's your good key verse. God has welcomed him. Here, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. There's a good concept. Uh, at the end of the day, they're going to have to answer. And here's in the way that people will answer for these preferences, Okay? And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's, here's, here it is, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another. 
while another esteems all days alike. Some people think I would worship on Sunday. I can worship on Friday. All right, there's a lot of people who would, have, who would go, to the, go to the mat saying, if we don't worship on Saturday, we're not worshiping God of the Bible. Okay, well, here we are. One person esteems one day is better than the other, while the other esteems all days alike. Each one, here's what should happen. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Am I asking you not to have preferences? Say no, okay? Because you can have preferences, right? Because as, as a matter of fact, you should be fully convinced in your own mind what you ought to be doing. You should be fully convinced. And if you're not, you shouldn't have opened your mouth anyway, but you should be fully convinced about what, of what you believe. And the one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats is in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So we have both here who are honoring the Lord, and they're doing what they're doing to honor the Lord. Now, this is the, the dichotomy, right, of sin and righteousness. Can I do any sin to honor the Lord? No. Okay, there's a great understanding of is it a preference or is it a command? Because if it's a preference, the odds are it, the odds are you can look and say that's not sin. That's just somebody honoring God different than the way I honor God. Okay, but we can't honor God in sin, so that's why we're not talking about sin here. I'm talking about your preferences. I'm talking about my preferences. It says here, for none of us, in verse 7, lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Look, we exist, to, we exist for the Lord. Whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, whether we live or whether we die, we die, we're the Lord. So we're all for him. Okay, verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Verse 10. Or why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. At the end of the day, when it comes to your preferences, uh, we're all going to have to stand before God to give an account. And that's why you better be convinced about how you live for the Lord. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or, or live or die, you better be fully convinced of what you're doing. You ought to be, even when it comes to the preferences. Like, you just need to understand that everything in your life ought to be done in the lens of, how am I doing this for the Lord? And you need to be fully convinced, you need to go after it. But you better understand in the ways of preferences and the things that you decide to do in our world that are preferences and that have nothing to do with sin, they're your preferences and you need to be convinced about them, but you do not force other people to do them. Are we on the same page here? Okay, I know it's ethereal. I'm about to bring it down to a, a real level, okay? Here's a good preliminary rationale in weighing out personal preferences. It's to ask this question. Can my view be held faithfully by all Christians throughout the world? This is a great way for you to think, is this a preference or is this a command? Well, it's to ask yourself this question. Can my view be held faithfully by all Christians throughout the world? Can all Christians, no matter where they are, no matter where they are in America, no matter where they are in the world, can they hold to this view faithfully? Because to be a Christian means that I have to hold things faithfully. Right? And so if there's things that cannot be held faithfully somewhere else in the world, odds are it's your preference and it's not a command in Scripture. Okay? Uh, there's a city in uh, Montana called Winnet. You ever been there? Nobody? It's 200 people. I hope you haven't been there. Probably not. Okay? You can't do a lot with 200 people. Right? I mean, they're probably all just scrounging around to try to survive. Right? Uh, but they can be Christians, can't they? Can they be Christians in Winnet? I hope so, right? They can be Christians. But there's a lot of things that they're limited in scope of being able to accomplish in a city of 200, okay? Uh, also, New York City, you know, population in 2019 was 2 or 8.4 million people. There's probably lots of different ways you can live in New York City, isn't there? A lot of broad, different ways you can go down, a lot of different options as a Christian that I can live my life, okay? But what we have to understand is God has called Christians in Winnet, Montana, and New York City to be faithful, and so there is nothing lacking in either one of those cities that, would re that consists of what it takes for a Christian to be faithful. Now, in those cities, there's other things that we have to keep in mind, like how do I live as a faithful Christian in Winnet, Montana? How do I live as a faithful Christian in New York City? And those things look different, and they're called preferences. And you ought to be faithful in those and convinced about them, but you can't force people in New York City to be the same kind of convictional in particular areas that these things don't even exist in Winnet, Montana. And let me give you some examples, okay? Whew. All right. For example, the exclusivity of the gospel. Is that a preference or a command? Tell me. It's a command. All right. Thou shalt not murder. Is that a preference or a command? Idolizing things. Is that a preference or a command? All right. Drunkenness. To not be drunk. Is that a, is that a preference or a command? 
to not be greedy. Is that a preference or a command? All right, good. So we're all on the same page, right? Those are things that are non-negotiable for all Christians. I don't care if you live in Montana, New York City, New Braunfels, Texas. We all do those things. Okay, we have to. There's no choice. Okay, here we go. All right, probably preferences, right? Uh, probably preferences. How, I, how, my student, how my kids are educated, okay? All right, how my kids are educated. There's a lot of different ways that we can educate our children these days. Okay, but we have to understand that how we choose to educate our children, we got to understand that, okay, what does the Bible teach about these things? Where is my limitation for how I can cause and call other people to educate their children? Okay, we have to understand this is probably a place that Scripture calls a preference. And the reason is, is because when I go to Winnet, Montana, and there's 200 people there, there's probably only uh, this amount of options for schooling children. True or false? 200 people. Okay, in New York City, I probably could educate my children a hundred different ways a Sunday. Okay, and now it would be absurd for somebody in New York to then take their family to win at Montana and say, you better do it this way. And they're like, what do you mean? I, I thought that my, my biblical commands were uh, to the exclusivity of the gospel, to not murder, to not idolize, to do the fundamental things of what it means to be a Christian. You see where I'm going here, right? And I'm not done there, okay? Uh, working spouses, that's another one, okay? Working spouses. Uh, my spouse works really hard, but she's not on a payroll, okay? Uh, but you know what I don't do? I don't go to every one of you and say, if your wives work, you're not a Christian, okay? Right? No, why? Because that's a preference. And we see biblical patterns that may in, in, indicate that that could be a good idea, but it's not a command, okay? It's not a command, it's a preference. And I'm not gonna call you to live your life that way. Because it's a preference. Because you can be a great Christian husband and a great Christian wife when both of you work. And you can raise your children. It's going to be harder, but you can do it. Dating. That's a big one. Dating. Right? Dating. You know, you know how much the Bible says about dating? This much. There is not a single verse you can find in Scripture that talks about dating. Because dating has not happened. Dating has become a thing only in the last hundred years of human existence. Dating has become a thing. Are there godly ways to date? Are there biblical principles to date? Does the Bible say that your kids aren't allowed to date until they're 21? Does your, Bible, does your Bible say kids aren't allowed to date until they're 18? Okay, that's probably a preference, isn't it? Okay, and preferences mean that I need to read the scripture, my family's going to read the scripture, and we're going to come up with a good biblical principle, and it's going to work, and I'm going to be convinced of it in my family, and I'm not going to force your family to do it. There's, there's other ones, but I think, I think we've done pretty good, right? Have we, have we concreted that? Okay. The point of the matter is, is the peace of Christ is so weighty. It's so significant that if I'm going to cross that line from peace to conflict, it better be because of a command of the Bible and not one of my preferences. You hear me? Okay. If I'm going to, if I'm going to step across the blood of Christ to try to get into conflict with someone else, I better understand what that costs and what this is going to cost, and I need to count the cost to make sure that this is worth stepping over for that. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is how we're going to stay united as a church. And this is what the Bible says about us staying united in the church. And I think one of the biggest problems in our society is we don't have enough pastors in their pulpits preaching this. Okay? Um, we're not afraid to preach Scripture. Okay. And here, here's the bottom line, right? If the answer is no to the question, can my view be held faithful by all Christians throughout the world? If your answer is no, it's a preference and needs to be laid down in cases of conflict, right? If it's a preference, you need to lay it down in cases of conflict. Now, if you can answer yes, and you need to go to Scripture, because if you say yes, you should be able to take me to the Bible and say, tell me where it says this, and tell me where, if it doesn't say it exactly, you need to tell me where my principal application is of why all Christians ought to be doing this in, in my situation, and if you can answer yes to this, then there may be a biblical warrant to hold your, to your firm view, or at least a good enough reason to seek wise counseling. Did you hear that? There may be really, really, really good reasons you hold these views, and they may be biblical. And if you're having a hard time weighing those things, that's a great opportunity to go seek wise counsel from your pastors. Isn't that great? Because you can hold strongly to your conviction. And what you need to do is go to your church leadership and say, guys, we, just, we have some conflict right here, and we could use some, some counsel. And that's how we resolve church conflict and how we keep church division from happening. Are we all on the same page there? Because this is going to happen. I mean, you realize. You know, most churches don't collapse from the outside. They collapse from the inside. All right? But you need to know where your pastors stand, where the Bible stands, and you need to know where we all should be standing so we can be on the same side. All right.
and this, this is really kind of what it comes down to, right? Instead of being known for voicing our preferences as Christians, instead of being known, like, are you one of those persons that when you walk in, people are like, oh, there they are. They're about to tell me everything they think, all right? Or, right, when, I, when you walk into the room, are you going to be known for something completely different? Are you going to be, when people walk in the room, this is what you should be known for, and it's found in the last phrase of verse 15. It says this, after all of these things, you also need to be thankful, right? Be thankful. You know what, you know what makes division cease? Thankfulness. You know, it's hard to divide with people that you're thankful for. See, in the immediate context, and I, I want to I talk about the immediate context because I'm not just talking about, and Paul's not talking about, being thankful to God here in this immediate context. Now, in a few other verses, just a couple of more verses down, he talks about giving thanks to God. But in this context here, we're talking about being thankful for people, being thankful for the church of God that he's placed around us. It's an interpersonal thanksgiving here. So we're talking about being thankful. And again, it's another second person imperative, which means it's a verb, and it's something you get to participate in as a Christian. You get to be thankful. And the Colossian calling, what Paul's calling the Colossians to, is to be thankful for these kind of people, those who are chosen, holy, and loved. Remember we talked about that last week, right? If you're chosen, holy, and loved, uh, you need to be thankful for these people. And who are those people? Christians, right? You need to be thankful for the Christians that are around you. And if you don't know Christians around you, get to know Christians around you because you're going to have a hard time keeping unity with people you don't even know. All right? It's a lot of times people in the peripheries who create a lot of conflict because you don't even love the people in, in God's church. Get in there and love the people in God's church. And even if you're in the middle of the core group of the people in this church, love the people all over the church because when you do, you're going to be less likely to create conflict because you're thankful for people and, and it's driven by your love for people. And I say this, that for us to love is to be thankful. Do you realize that? For you to love is to be thankful. And I tell you this, if you can't think of someone to be thankful for, uh, you may be lacking love. Right? If you can't think of someone in your mind, if someone in your mind in this church doesn't pop into your mind when you say, I'm thankful for blank. If no one can pop up in your mind, now if you're brand new here, I get it, okay? Uh, you're probably not thankful for that guy who's yelling at me right now, okay? Uh, if you can't think of someone and you've been here for a while, you may not be displaying the love of Christ. You ought to be in your life thinking of, I'm thankful for that person. I'm thankful for that person, and here's why, okay? And it's so important that I put it this way in the final point. Point number three, you need to display your thankfulness regularly. You need to display your thankfulness regularly. In your application questions, I have two questions that have to do with this point. Uh, but the one, I'm going to have you reading areas in the New Testament where Paul, the apostle, writes over and over again. Uh, I just pray to God because I'm thankful for you guys here. When you might say, well, isn't he praying to God? He's writing it out to people, right? If he was just praying it to God and didn't see the need to tell people, he wouldn't have wrote it. He wrote it because he wanted people to know that he was thankful for them. And we often need to be spending time telling people we're thankful for them. Maybe you do pray you're thankful for people to God. You need to be voicing that to people in your church. Paul thinks it's such a serious part of what it means to be a Christian for us to be thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I am telling you that it's going to be so important for you to display your thankfulness regularly. Something Kayla and I do often. Uh, anybody else in here can be negative sometimes? All right. See, yeah, we all agreed on that one. All right. Uh, me and Kayla can also be negative sometimes. And actually, one of the hardest parts about being in ministry is you can become real cynical very quick right? All these problems, no one likes you, you know, like I don't have any friends, you know, whatever, all these things. I have plenty of friends, people love me, all those good things. But in ministry, in ministry, things can get hard, and you can get real cynical real quick, and the last thing you can do is be thankful, and you can just be so like negative all the time that Kayla and I have an agreement in our marriage that we stop, uh, and I believe Pastor Evan and Candace do this too, uh, and we stop and say, you got to tell me a couple of things that you're thankful for. Like, you can be negative about all these things in your life, but you're going to stop right now and you're going to tell me, what are you thankful for? And we stop, and it's not a humbling, it's, no, it, it is a humbling experience, because once I'm just going off on being negative, my wife says, what are you thankful for? And then I don't want to say anything, you know, because then I'm like, oh, she got me, okay? Uh, and so I have to then chill, cr quit creating conflict, and create Thanksgiving. And that allows me to have unity in my marriage and unity in my church because probably what was coming out of my mouth was not for the encouragement of God's people anyway. It was unnecessary. And so that's what we do. 
And we do it because it's, you have a hard time being negative with people you give thanks for. You ever notice that? It's a hard time being negative for people that you're giving thanks to because it's so hard to be telling people, oh, I'm so thankful for this, I'm so thankful for this, I'm so thankful for this, while at the same time being, I hate that person over there. God, so, I'm so thankful for you. Like, then you're lying. Okay? Then you're not showing any kind of Christian virtue of, this, of the proof of the Spirit that lives in you. I have a ton of stories how, how this happens in my own life, and since I got an extra minute, I'll tell you. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are men uh, that I truly have loved in my life throughout ministry men in ministry that I love. And, and I, honestly, sometimes they're just the, on my nerves sometimes, okay, on my nerves. Uh, and often what I do is I sit and say, well, I'm thankful for this person for these things. And I, 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 take, I tell them, I say, well, I don't tell them. I often do, but I at least say it to myself. I'm, I just, I love that this person does this and this and they're this and they're this. And then I realize, you know, all these things that they, that I was aggravated for amount to nothing compared to all the reasons I'm thankful for these people. Now, because of that, I want you to do this, and it's application question number three on the back of your paper. Uh, but I want you to name three people who attend Compass Bible Church, this church here, and I want you to write down something uh, that they have done that you're thankful for. This week, I want you to name three people from Compass Bible Church, and if you're like, I don't know three people, go get to know three people, have them do something for you, all right, and then tell them you're thankful, all right? But you need to go out there, all right, and you need to name three people, and you need to write down something they've done you're thankful for, and I want you to make a plan to tell them this week. Make a plan this week to tell them. Now, just, I know this is, this is a practice and application, you realize, but if you did these two things, it's on your back of your application question, uh, application questions. One, which is the first one that I talked about earlier, uh, if we were to write down close friends in our church and list one way you can benefit them this week, if it didn't just become an application this week, if this became what our church was, that we often uh, went and became a benefit to people we loved, and then we also often told them and expressed how thankful we were to them, and this wasn't just something we did this week, but it's something we did every week, can you imagine how much unity and love this church would display every single week? But the problem is, is we often aren't benefits to others, and we often don't show our thanksgiving to others. Now, I know it's hard to tell this church because I'm looking around, I'm like, you're a bunch of thankful, loving people, okay? Which is good, but I'm telling you, we can do better. We can get out there and we can love people because of the love of God. And, and here's where we often f hiccup, especially people who accuse of legalism, Right? It's not only out of duty that we put on love. Is it a duty? Yes. Is it a duty for me to get up and love my wife every day? Well, yeah, it is my duty. It is my responsibility. Okay, But it's not only a, a duty, right? Uh, there is a duty involved, but it's not a burdensome duty like we've talked about. And it's because I love the opportunity to love my wife. Do you hear that? I love the opportunity to love my wife. Now, the same way, I love the opportunity to love my church. Okay, that's why I spend so much time preparing for my sermons. That's why I, spend, I try to spend hours and hours every week counseling. Uh, that's why I try to, me and Pastor Evan spend hours a week meeting about how we can love our church better. I love to love God's people. And it should be all of our uh, callings to which we were called to love to love God's people. And it ought to be something that we want to do because we love God and his commands aren't burdensome and he calls me to love people, then I need to say if these are burdensome, there's something I don't understand properly about God's love. Because I should love God so much that the things that he asked me to do aren't burdensome. Just like when my wife asked me to do things, uh, it's not burdensome on me because I love her. And so what she asked me to do is not burdensome for me. And what God's word asks us to do as Christians should not be burdensome for us. And we can, we can say it this way. It is our privilege to love others the way that God loves us. Pray with me. God, we thank you for loving us in such a way where we can display it to others. God, it wasn't just that you laid down your life, but it's that you displayed it through your life what it means to love and God, we have no excuse or no opportunity to ask what is love when our, your word teaches us that you are love, that everything about you is love, your attribute is love, you give the characteristics of love in everything that you do, and you have called us to love the way that you have loved us.
And so I just pray, God, as we build your church here, that as more and more people come into this church, God, that they would see love expressed. They would see it lived out through the lives of the saints in this church. And they would also see it through the uh, benefit of church unity. That we're not unified because we don't, uh, we don't talk about things of disagreement. We're not unified because we won't talk about theology, but we're unified around what we believe about you, and therefore we allow preferences to fall on the wayside. God, I pray for convictional Christians. I pray for, for, for Christians in this church that have convictions about as many things as they can have convictions about and that they would still be unified. And that is my prayer. And I pray that through all that, we can also uh, give our thankfulness, give our thanksgiving to one another. God, that as we give thanks to you, we remember and recall the people who have been such a benefit in our lives that we would also reach out to them and be thankful. God, I look forward to the fruit of this church and seeing how all these things come about in the life of our people, in the life of this city, through the faithful ministry of the saints at Compass Bible Church. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.